Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word in hand now and open once again to the book of Revelation. We've been in the book of Revelation for three Sundays consecutively now, and today we come to chapter 19, verses 7 through 10 as our text. The title of the message is The Marriage Supper of the Lamb. This is our fifth and Lord willing final message on the subject of heaven. Um, I, for one, have been very blessed as I prepared these messages and have been reminded over and again of the future glory that awaits believers, saints of the Lord. Just to remind you, we began this series in the book of Colossians where Paul says we should set our affections, that is our hearts and minds attention, our love on things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. That is even now our hearts can be in heaven even as our body is here on earth. And from there we were invited into an open door using John as our tour guide into the very throne room of heaven. And there we saw the population of heaven, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and all of the population of heaven was living in anticipation of the consummation of human history, which we call the marriage of the Lamb, which is our subject today. Now, repeatedly in the Bible, God alludes to his relationship with his people in terms of marriage. In the Old Testament, for example, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, God describes how he found Israel in its infancy, in its blood, in its poverty. He cleaned her up. He gave her oil and perfume upon her head. He clothed her in the most beautiful of pure garments. And then he betrothed himself to her. And then he called her his wife. Jehovah was the husband of Israel. Now, she proved to be a very unfaithful and an adulterous, adulterous wife, as you know. And in the New Testament, the church, that is those who are born again, who make up the church universal, are described as the bride of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, we read, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So, in a sense, all of human history has been leading up into this incredible moment referenced here in Revelation 19, when the Lord Jesus and his bride are finally together eternally. And so, earthly marriage then is designed to illustrate the eternal love and relationship that Christ has for his church. Now that fact alone should cause churches and Christians to have a very high view of marriage. But sadly, as you know, we find ourselves in a culture that seems to have a very low view of marriage these days. There's evidence for that everywhere. Uh, the most obvious evidence to me statistically is that there are fewer people getting married today per capita than any time in recorded history. There are fewer people staying married than ever before. And I think most disturbing in our own cultural context is that our nation has saw, saw fit to change the very definition of marriage. 
And yet the Bible has not. The Bible declares that marriage is God's idea. And our own church felt it necessary to hold up a very clear distinction in what we believe the Bible teaches about marriage and what our culture does. In our document, the Baptist Faith and Message of 2000 says this about marriage, quote, Article 18, marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in a covenant commitment for a lifetime. It's God's unique gift to reveal the union between Christ and his church and to provide for the man and the woman in marriage the framework for intimate companionship, the channel of sexual expression according to biblical standards and the means of procreation of the human race, end quote. But like with all good and wonderful blessings and marriage is a good and wonderful blessing from God, Peter called it the grace of life the gift of God to all humanity and all cultures, but like with all good and precious blessings from God, Satan has sought to pervert it, destroy the institution of marriage, and yet the church stands up and says, thus says the Lord, because we are here to be salt and light. And as we think of marriage, now turn your attention to our text, Revelation 19, 7. This is an angel in heaven who is serving as the Apostle John's tour guide through his heavenly vision. And he says, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing his word today. The angel says, let us rejoice, plural. And it reminds us of the population of heaven, those uh, numbered too many to number. Remember, myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands. He's calling all of the population of heaven to rejoice and be glad. Now, in fact, in this chapter, had we read all of it, we find four calls to rejoicing for the population of heaven. And they all begin with the word hallelujah. Hallelujah literally means praise the Lord. And he's praising the Lord for a very specific reason. And that is the time for the marriage that has been predicted by the prophets for ages past has finally come. And John is so excited about that prospect that he bows down to worship the angel. <laughs> and the angel says, no, sir, don't bow down to worship me. He said, I'm a fellow servant like you. I, I'm just the messenger. Worship God, he says. And so here we have the announcement of the marriage has come. Now, of course, this marriage was based on ancient um, rituals and customs of that day. Uh, in the ancient world that John lived in, there were several steps in marriage. First was the betrothal or engagement period. Then there was the preparation. Then there was the presentation of the bride. And then finally, there was a great celebration. So let's walk through those four stages of this marriage from a biblical worldview. First of all, the betrothal what we call the engagement. Now in those days, marriages were typically arranged between families. It was very businesslike. There were contracts that had to be signed. There was down payments and dowries that had to be made from the bridegroom's side. 
But once those documents were signed and the dowry was paid, it was legal and it was binding. You were considered legally married, even though the marriage had not been consummated yet and there had not been the official ceremony. You're familiar, I'm sure, with at least one of those kind of marriages in the Bible between Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph were in this betrothal period when she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And this betrothal period was a, a period of testing and purification. In fact, the closest English word that we have to this period, this word in the Hebrew is the word sanctification. It's the setting aside period. It was very important in the Hebrew world. Well, the Bible indicates that we believers who make up the bride of Christ, the church, were chosen by God before the dawn of time. That is, before the foundation of the earth, he wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life, and he, by his sovereign decree, chose to set his salvific love upon us. Now, here in a month or so, we're going to go back to our verse-by-verse -verse study of the book of Romans. And we left off at the end of chapter 8. And chapter 8 is a great, great chapter in the Bible about assurance of salvation. How can believers know for sure they're going to heaven when they die? And Paul says it's based on what we call the golden chain of redemption. That God has promised to do some things and he's doing those things and one day he's going to complete doing those things. And it begins, it said, before we were born with God's foreknowledge. He says those he foreknew, that is he set his loving salvation love upon us before we were born... Those he foreknew, he predestined for us to be holy one day, that is to be presented to him pure in heaven. Those he predestined to holiness, he called, that is in space and time through the effectual calling. He saved us, he opened our blind eyes and we were born again. And those he called, he justified, that as the judge, he declared us not guilty. He declared us pure and clean before him. And those he justified, he glorified. That is, there's coming a day when God is going to bring all of the things that have happened in human history to a climax at this marriage between the bridegroom Christ and the bride, his church. So that's the betrothal period. We're in that period right now, by the way, because the betrothal period was marked by the second phase, which was the preparation. Once the marriage contract had been signed, then it was the bridegroom's duty to make a place for his bride to live. Now in those days, there were multiple generations that lived in the typical household. This was true for many years in this country. If you're old enough to remember the television show, The Waltons, you'll know what I mean. You had grandma and grandma living downstairs, and then you had uh, their son and his wife and their many children living upstairs, and every night they said goodnight to one another. And they shared their meals together. They all lived in the same household. And that was very common for thousands of years in human history. And the way they would do it is um, the, the young man would busy himself with building an addition onto his father's house. And when it was completed and all the preparations would be made, the father would say, you may now go claim your bride. And then the son and his friends would proceed through the streets, usually at night with torches, and they would make their way to the bride's house where she was waiting anxiously with her friends and they would proceed back to the new rooms that had been prepared in the father's house. Well remember that church is the bride of Christ. Christ is the bridegroom and that scenario helps us to understand and interpret something Jesus said as recorded in John chapter 14. Do you remember it? He says do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus is about to leave them. He's about to be arrested and crucified 
He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, dwelling places. If we're not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Here is the bridegroom going to prepare a room for his bride. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That is, I will proceed and collect you. And there I am, you may be also. I'll take you back to the Father's home. And so we are now awaiting Christ coming for his church. And then when he does come for his church, there's going to be the actual marriage ceremony. We call that the presentation. Once the preparations were made, the time was right, the bridegroom would proceed through the streets, as I said, and, and, and now the church is already technically and legally married to the bride. We, we can rightly say we are the bride of Christ right now. We don't have to say we will be the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ, but we have not come to that point of glorification or the fullest expression of that truth. And so one day we will. We talk about it in terms of the already and the not yet, already in our hearts and minds. We are ruling and reign. Christ is ruling and reigning in our lives. But one day, in, in a very fundamentally different way, when everything else has passed away, we will be with Christ forever. And I believe that the Bible teaches that that happens at the moment of the rapture of the church. Now, there are reasons for that. Let me give you two biblical reasons for that. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and explaining to them what's going to happen in the future. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. A mystery is something that was hidden in the past, but is now revealed. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Paul is speaking there of glorification. When Christ comes for his church, those who are dead in Christ, that is the believing dead, are going to be raised with new glorified bodies. And those of us that are still alive are going to be caught up in the air, and we're going to get new bodies on the way up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says the same thing. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so my understanding of the scripture is that when a believer dies today, their spirit is separated from their body. That body goes back to dust. That spirit goes into the presence of the Lord where there's a conscious state of existence. And then when Christ comes again for his church at the rapture, those spirits are going to be reunited with glorified bodies that are fit for heaven and eternity. Verse 15 says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words, amen and amen. And so the rapture is described in both of those passages. The word rapture means the snatching away. Now, the question that theologians debate is not whether or not there's a rapture, it's to when it is and how it's fulfilled. And the most obvious question is, is the rapture 
and the second coming of Jesus one and the same event? And I believe they're not. I believe they're two events separated by a period of seven years. Now I know we can get in deep weeds here, but I think the Bible is fairly clear on this. And, and the most obvious reason I believe that is the chronological evidence. So this vision that we see here in chapters 17, 18, and 19 seems to be chronological. And so uh, here, here's what I mean. We see right now here in verses 7 through 10, the marriage supper. And at the conclusion of the marriage supper, we have a conjunction. Look at verse 11 of Revelation 19. What's that word? And. Meaning there's something that happens chronologically next. So after the marriage, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in white linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And his, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, of the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, that's the Lord Jesus. And you remember the first time that Jesus entered Jerusalem, it was not as a conquering king, it was as a suffering servant. He rolled the foal of a donkey, the most humble of animals. He said he came to seek and save the lost. But there is coming a day when Jesus comes in his second coming that he's not coming to save, he's coming to judge. And we see the fierce wrath of God as Jesus comes not riding a foal of a donkey, but on a white war horse and following him or his armies. And he is declared forever and obviously to be who he's always been, the King of kings and, and Lord of lords. This is the second coming in which he comes to judge. So if you want to look at it chronologically, my understanding is right now we are waiting for the rapture. That is the next thing on God's historical calendar. And then the church will be caught up in the air. We'll go back to heaven where we'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb. I believe that will be the seven-year period called the tribulation. And during that tribulation, God is pouring out those judgments on the earth. Uh, and we are in heaven uh, celebrating the Lord's goodness. And then at the second coming, Jesus comes on this white horse and sets up his millennial kingdom. And at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ, we have the new heavens and the new earth. We've been studying about the last two weeks. And then the consummation of all of that is the new Jerusalem descending from heaven. And it's placed here on the new earth where we will rule and reign with Christ forever and ever. Now, we've had a wedding announcement. We've had uh, a betrothal period. We have had the preparation. We have had uh, the presentation at the marriage. And what do you do once the vows have been said? You celebrate, right? We still do that in a lesser way today. been talking about my own marriage here the last few weeks. Let me just summarize. Uh, 19 years ago, we said our vows right here in this room. And then we invited you, our guests, down to the gymnasium where we had uh, punch and mints and peanuts. Uh, we're not going to fly southwest when we go to heaven, okay? 
We're not going to have mints and peanuts in heaven. We're going to have a marriage supper. We're going to have a celebration. Now, uh, when you're on a budget, as we were here in the United States, you do the best you can, but God's not on a budget. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And even in the ancient world, uh, part of the preparation was gathering all the food and buying all of the celebration that, that had to take place because it was the thing to do to invite all your friends and family and have a days long celebration. It was not just a little meet and greet. People came and stayed for days and sometimes week and they feasted. And remember Jesus attended one of these feasts in Cana of Galilee where he performed his first miracle, first public miracle. And it was a celebration of celebrations. Well, can you imagine the celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb? the consummation of everything that's happened to this point in human history leading up to this point. It's going to be a celebration of celebrations. Well, who's going to be there? Well, John says he saw the groom who he calls the lamb. Now this tells us that this marriage was made possible through the atoning blood of Jesus. Remember I said when the contract was signed, there had to be a payment made. And what was the payment for our redemption, it was none other than the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the old covenant, that system of sacrifices was typical prophecy that was predicting the once coming lamb who Hebrews declares is the lamb of God who uh, never has to be repeated. This is the once for all sacrifice. In fact, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to begin his public ministry through baptism, he said, behold, look over there, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John saw Jesus in the throne room and the question went out, who is worthy to take the title deed of the universe? He looked over and what did he see? A lamb slain as if before the foundation of the earth. This is the Lord Jesus. It speaks of the purity that is the bride because of the shed blood of Jesus. Though our sins be as scarlet, he will make them white as snow. Well, Jesus is there. He, he's the bridegroom. What about the bride? Well, scripture says, verse seven, the bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the white linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Again, the church is all of those who've been redeemed, who have washed in the blood of the lamb, whose sins are forgiven, whose names are written in the lamb's book of life. Now note here, what he says, it was given to her to clothe herself. This speaks of the means of salvation, which is grace. We teach here, and the Bible does, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We can't do anything to earn salvation. The bride didn't choose on her own volition to, to, to have Jesus be her bridegroom. She was chosen before the foundation of the earth. And this speaks of his atoning sacrifice. But it also says that the righteous acts of the saints adorn the bride in white clothing. So what then is the relationship to righteous acts, or we would call them good works, with salvation? Well, the book of James tells us. He says that faith without works is what? Dead. It's insincere. It's not real. And so taking the whole of Scripture, it's very clear what he means, that we don't get to heaven by our works or because of our good deeds, but our good deeds prove the fact that we're on our way to heaven, right? That our hearts have been transformed and changed. We no longer hate sin and righteousness. Uh, excuse me, we, don't, we no longer love sin, but we hate sin and we, we love righteousness. 
And because of that, our lives manifest good works. In fact, the Bible teaches that the true evidence that a person is born again is their changed life, their good works. Now this morning in the first service, we baptized a family of three. But I've reminded them in our private uh, time of counseling them, getting ready for baptism, that the evidence of your salvation is not that you got wet in a Baptist church. Anybody can do that. It's not even that you received a letter in the mail that said you're an official member. They're going to get one of those. The evidence always in the scripture that a person is born again is a transformed life. That is, they bear fruit. Remember those four types of soils that Jesus told about where the seed went out and only one produced fruit proved itself to be the real thing, right? Jesus said, abide in me and I in you and you will bear fruit and much fruit. And so those good deeds adorn us there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. They are the proof of our right relationship. But you can't have a wedding without witnesses, right? At least not a legal one. You have to have guests there. And by the way, next time you go to a Christian wedding, don't just go to a party. What you're asked to do at a wedding ceremony is to be a witness of a contract that's being made to two parties of which God is there as well. And, and think of that. And it, it informs your prayer for that couple that's getting married. So who in the world are these guests? The scripture says here that uh, those who are invited are blessed. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I think growing up, I didn't think very deeply about this. I just thought, well... That means everyone who's been, heard the gospel and, and responded to it is a wedding guest. Now that doesn't make sense though because that's who the bride is. The bride's the church. Christ is the bridegroom and the guest must be someone else. Well, I think the answer is found in Matthew chapter 8 verse 11. Jesus was performing miracles and teaching throughout Israel and not many Jewish people, as you know, historically responded favorably to the gospel. And yet, Seems like the Gentiles there that he was coming in contact with were having a greater faith. And Jesus made a point of that. And he said, many will come to that supper on that day from east and west. That means from all over the world. And later on, John sees that vision in heaven of people from every tribe and tongue and people group there. A number too many to count. Jesus said, many will come from east and west to that supper and sit down with, listen, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Old Testament saints, the patriarchs, book of Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith. Of faith. Now they're not the church because Christ had, had not uh, died on the cross yet, but they were saved through grace, through faith in Christ looking forward the same way that, that we are. And so I take those guests to be the Old Testament saints who are going to be there and rejoice just like the church does for this marriage. Now there's coming a day when the New Jerusalem comes down where the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints are going to dwell in the New Jerusalem together forever and ever. And I'd ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart just now to see if there's any impure thing within you. I'd ask everyone here to examine their own heart to see if they're truly born again. And if there's one here today who knows not the Lord Jesus, today's the day of salvation. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your personal sin guilt, 
his perfect righteousness in comparison and the judgment that awaits you. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you are saved, if you are born again, confess your sins before the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we address you today, as we come to the end of this message, our hearts turn to heaven. Lord, we are grateful that we were betrothed to Jesus before we ever had consciousness. He wrote our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then in space and time, as He predestined us to holiness, He called us out of darkness into light. From spiritual death to spiritual life. He declared us through justification, clean and right before Him. And one day, He's coming again for His church. Will we receive glorified bodies fit for heaven and eternity? Lord, I pray if there's even one who knows you not today, that you draw them by your Spirit. Grant them faith and repentance. For every believer today, clean our hearts. Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.